You're listening to Johnson & Boone Solicitors podcast exclusively on the Pod Station. Welcome everyone to episode 5 of the Johnson & Boone podcast. My name's Mark. Joining me again this week, although it might be the last time for a, a couple of shows because we've got a few other of the Johnson & Boone team joining me, is Rob Boone, the director of Johnson & Boone. How are you doing? Afternoon, Mark. How's it going? Ah, it's great. Which topic are we covering this show? So in the last episode, if you remember, we went through disputes and litigation, um, our parties should attempt to negotiate a conclusion, and then what happens if you need to go through and get a court order? Um, in this show, we then move on to discuss enforcement uh, and the different ways in which that order, if a party is required to obtain one, can then be enforced. We should mention that this show is is designed to provide some legal advice and tips on a wide, wide variety of areas, all of which Johnson & Boone specialise in. You can get all of those shows by visiting johnsonandboone.co.uk, the website, and going to the podcast page. Uh, you can find them on all the major podcast platforms, so Apple, Google, Spotify, Deezer, Stitcher. Um, if you subscribe, which is completely free, then when the latest show is uploaded, it will automatically download onto the device that you use to listen to your podcast. If you want it even simpler, then you just need to download the Johnson & Boom mobile app, uh, which has uh, all of the latest articles. It has all of the podcast shows right in one place. It also has the ability for you to actually book appointments with any of the team if you do feel the need to um, get some advice or some help. Uh, and you can also get access to your Legal Guard membership. We will stick in some information during the show about Legal Guard, so you can find out about that. And if you do become a member, uh, then you can gain access to the app. So there's there's a whole host of ways in which you can get this show well worth checking it out we've done a whole host of things so far we've we've covered landlord and tenants we've done uh, commercial issues we've done shareholders agreements last week we did if you've got a, a dispute and how to resolve that and this week of course as rob just said we're going to be looking at how you can enforce that judgment if you've got it and you're still waiting for the money <laughs> so with all that in mind rob um, picking up from where we we left off in the last episode, we've gone through the court process or we've reached an agreement with the other side having started the legal process and the court have given us a, a what's called a judgment, which is, for want of a better phrase, a sheet of paper saying this is how much you are due to be paid uh, and this is when you're due to be paid it. I've got that piece of paper. I'm happy as Larry. I'm looking forward to the day when I get paid. It doesn't happen. <laughs> what do I do now? So in the first instance, Mark, what would happen is when the court gives the judgment, they will inform the parties of the initial time period for payment. So that is normally 14 days or 28 days from the date upon which the judgment is due. Uh, and then unless there's any alternative agreements for instalments, or unless the uh, the paying party makes an application to court for additional time to pay on the basis of hardship or on the basis of they, they haven't got the, the funds available at this moment in time, once that initial time period has expired, uh, it will be for the claimant who has received the judgment in their favour to then decide which of the enforcement steps that, that they will take in order to recover the money. So if I owe the money and I want extra time or if I am unable to pay it, I'm able to go to the court to ask for changes to those terms? Yeah, in certain circumstances, the parties would make an application to the court for what's called additional time to pay. Uh, in doing so, they, they file a paper application in which they are required to disclose their means. So they have to, they have to give the court information about their finances, their income, their outgoings, and why they're unable to make the payments. And they have to confirm their proposal over what period of time um, the the payment should be made. And then if the court is satisfied and, and grants that, then the actual original judgment is varied and it's varied to the extent of the new payment terms would then be recorded. 
if that is the case, then that would halt any enforcement unless they then defaulted on the terms of the new order. Um, but that isn't always granted. It, it depends upon the circumstances. And is there anything you can do if you're owed the money to either stop or challenge that process? Because presumably the people aren't going to be happy if the person who owes the money suddenly out of the blue says, I want more time or I can't afford it, particularly if that person thinks or feels that actually they probably could. Yeah, absolutely. It isn't a given that that application would be successful and the claimant, if we're assuming th throughout all this that it is the claimant who has received the award in their favour, uh, the claimant would receive notification from the court of the application and they actually get a copy of the information that has been filed by the defendant. Uh, they then have a period of time in which to respond and confirm whether they agree or disagree with the order being varied to reflect the new payment terms that are being suggested. And if they don't agree, why not? So at that stage, they would, um, for example, put forward information to confirm that they believe the paying party has got the funds to settle the judgment sums. Uh, and then normally it will be listed for a hearing in which the, the court can delve a little deeper. If that doesn't happen and it's just a straightforward, you owe it on the Friday, the money doesn't come, what options are available for you to to move it on or to try and force that person's hand? Yeah, so in those situations, what the, uh, the claimant would do is they would consider which of the available enforcement options is best for them. And there's, there's many types. So having an understanding of um, the different roads that they could go down is quite important. Um, the main options would be that they could instruct bailiffs, whether that be county courts or high court. Uh, they could apply for a third party debt order. Uh, perhaps they could go for an attachment of earnings. Uh, or finally, and an option which is routinely used is to enforce against any land uh, or property by way of a charging order. So there's quite a lot there. We'll try and go through each one individually. So let's start with the third party debt order. What is one of those? A third party debt order mark is uh, an application which is made or involves an application that is made to the county court uh, in which the judgment creditor is seeking to freeze amounts in a bank account which is held by the judgment debtor. So it involves an application. Uh, it, obviously, you need the bank details of that person in order to make the application. Uh, the bank are then informed that um, the application has been made. Any sums in the account are then froze up to the total value of what the judgment sums themselves are. And then the matter is listed for a hearing. Um, at that hearing, the court will consider um, any submissions that are made by the judgment debtor uh, such as hardship issues or anything like that, and they'll determine whether those sums can actually be released then to the claimant to pay off the sums that are outstanding. What happens when you've made the application and you've got the information that you were after, that there actually isn't enough money in the account for them to either pay or for it to be ordered to be paid to you? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, the party will only find out once they've made the application and the application is then served on the bank to freeze the accounts, what funds the bank hold. Um, obviously, the bank are only able to release funds uh, up to the extent of what is held in the account. So if you've got a situation, for example, let's say there's a judgment in place for £5,000 and you get a response back from the bank that says half of that figure um, is in the account, then the maximum amount that the court could order the bank to release would be £2,500. What that would then mean is there's still a balance of, of, of two and a half thousand pounds outstanding to the claimant and they could enforce that by any other means that they desire. Is there a, a particular type of debtor where this is a more suitable form of enforcement against? Because it feel it feels more like one where it's either a a sole trader or a, a limited company type structure but is that something that you could perhaps do on an individual as well yeah it can be done against individuals or companies what's important for uh for people to establish before they make the application is that the bank details that they have are the bank details of the person named on the judgment so if for example your judgment is against a limited company but the bank details that you have are the personal bank details for one of the directors that isn't going to work 
Um, so it's just important to make sure you have the correct information, uh, but they can be done against any type of legal entity. And how on earth do you, I mean, obviously, I don't want to go into too many trade secrets, but how do you get that kind of information? Because it's not something that's readily available. It isn't, but it comes down to the, the facts of the case. So it might be, for example, um, if it's in a commercial set and the parties have, have previously made payments over to each other, it could be the details are on a previous invoice if they've had earlier dealings. If you don't have access to that information through the course of the case or whatever means, and I, I suppose it's, it's important to emphasise that the only way you can get hold of this information has to be legal, um, otherwise you're lending yourself in a whole host of problems. Um, is there any sort of formal legal route you can use to force their hand if they're being uncooperative? It's really difficult when it comes to obtaining bank details because if you went down the route, for example, of trying to get the court to order someone to disclose their bank details, it's going to tip them off that you intend to make this application. And by the time you make the application, I think you'd probably find there wasn't any funds in that account for you to freeze. Um, so when you're considering the various options for enforcement, this one's very much an option that you'd only really consider if those details were readily available. Moving on to the next one, which is sort of a very similar vein. Uh, it's an attachment of earnings. Do you want to explain what that is? Yeah, so this is very much an option that you'd use uh, against an individual. Uh, and this involves an application to court to seek an order that regular payments be taken directly from the debtor's wages uh, to pay off the judgment sums over a period of time. Um, if it's ordered by the court, then the court will inform the employer to make specific deductions from the wages directly. Um, but there are rules um, and the deductions must not take the employee below an amount um, that they still have to take home which is called the protected earnings rate. Okay, and what's that? It's all based on a sliding scale, um, how much can be deducted. Um, so if if the debtor earns less than £300 a month, then unfortunately for the claimant, it's nil. Nothing can be deducted. Uh, and then there's a sliding scale on a percentage basis. So it starts at 3% uh, and it goes right the way up to 50% of um, their earnings over a certain level. Um, obviously, the difficulty for any claimant is at the time they make the application, how much somebody earns is normally quite sensitive information and they might not necessarily know. So one of the flaws with making such an application is it will be over time that they get the money, um, but it could also be the case if they're a low earner, it's, it's very little or it's nil. And are you asking for this information from the debtor or are you asking from their employers? No, you're not asking for information at all. You you, you need to know who their employers are in order to make the application. Uh, but it is, it's the, the employer that will do the calculation once the order is in place and you basically just receive what you receive at that time. Okay, uh, so that's attachment of earnings. Uh, you've also mentioned um, enforcing against property or land. What does that entail? Yeah, this is a very different um, option because it's it's very much uh, a situation in which the claimant is then playing the long game. They're more securing the amounts that they've been awarded rather than trying to, to recover them here and now. Um, so this involves firstly the claimant um, establishing, for example, a property that the defendant owns uh, and uh, ownership information can obviously be found via land registry. Once they've got that information, they make an application to court for an interim charging order uh, and they furnish the court with a copy of the judgments and information as to what's outstanding. All of that information is then served on the data so they know what's going on and they get an opportunity to object. Um, as long as none of those objections are such that they would defeat the application, um, the charging order will be made final. And then those judgment sums are secured as a charge against that property. What that means in, in basic terms is that the owner of the property, i.e. the debtor, is unable to do anything with that property by way of selling it or transferring it to anyone else until those judgment sums have been paid. So if they got to a situation where they were selling the property, uh, the claimant would receive their, their money out of the proceeds of any sale 
before the balance was then available for uh, the seller or the debtor. So they couldn't remortgage it either. It, it's a real, you, you you basically put a stop on them being able to do anything without first making sure you're seen as right. Yeah, the idea of it really is it, it makes the money safe um, because as long as the judgment isn't huge, there's probably enough equity in the property to make sure they're going to get their money at some stage. There are instances in which you get um, interest on the money over a period of time. So um, the debtor will still want to get rid of the charge it's unlikely they're just going to want to leave it sitting there. But whilst you're doing whatever else you're doing, and it's worth saying that you can use a number of enforcement options uh, all simultaneously if you want to, that's for the debtor to, that's for the creditor to decide themselves. Uh, but your money's safe, so it's secured against the property. And you know, all things being well, you will receive it eventually. Check out award-winning Johnson & Boone Solicitor's unique product, Legal Guard. Ideal for businesses and individuals. Legal Guard ensures you get the legal help you need when you need it. Packages start from just £24 a month and include free expert advice, access to a library of legal documents, as well as exclusive discounts on a range of services. For more information, visit johnsonandboon.co.uk forward slash legal guard and quote the code FEDCHESH. We're going to move on to the bailiffs. What is a bailiff? This process, uh, it can entail either a county court bailiff or a high court enforcement officer attending the property of the judgment debtor to secure either a payment uh, or to take away goods to the value of the sums due. Uh, Sometimes the outcome could also be a payment plan, uh, which has been agreed um, after their involvement. The county court bailiff would be used for um, any judgments that are less than £5,000, but the uh, the creditor just does have the option to use high court enforcement as long as the amount is over £600. So for any figures in between the middle, they've got an option. Now, it's quite a complex process. There's a, there's a lot of caveats to the whole bailiff um, enforcement option so we've we've got ourselves a special guest who's going to help us just clarify the whole process what powers they have how they tend to do things so you can understand that a little bit more we mentioned him in the last show it's matthew highway who's the operations director at lackford debt recovery who you might particularly recognize as having been on the uh, can't pay will take it away tv show I'm with you, yeah. How are you? Hi, Matt. How's it going? Thank you very much for, for getting involved. Yeah, no problem. How are you doing? I'm good, yeah. I'm good. Uh, you know, we, we're in the same boat as everybody else, really. You know, there's uh, there's only one paddle and there's a hole in the boat, isn't there? But um, <laughs> we're, 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 we're getting there, I think, slowly. I presume you can't do anything at the minute, then? Yeah, it's um, it's a bit of a difficult one. It's um, You know, there's lots of things we can do sort of from home. Um, and as a director, you know, there's bits I can do from home. Uh, the courts are still um, processing judgments and, and writs. So, um, yeah, we, we're, we're really looking at sort of getting everything in place so that when the green light comes again, we can we can hit the ground running. Well, there's going to be a nice backlog when, when it does start again. I think so. I think so. Um, you know, I think the um, you know, potentially the way the country comes out of all this, uh, it, it might mean a bit of extra work for everybody, but um, well, certainly for us. I think so. I think I think at the point that all this goes back to some sort of normality, maybe not the normality that we're all used to, but I think it'll kick off left, right and centre in, in relation to many things. So I think there'll be loads of litigation and loads of enforcement off the back of it as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. For the benefit of the listeners, uh, would you explain what high court enforcement is? Yeah, so I guess the first the first thing to, uh, to point out is um, that um, whenever a court makes a judgment, it doesn't necessarily follow that the defendant will make the payments or comply with the order that the, the court has made. Um, and to back that up, there's um, three sorts of high court writ. Um, uh, there are more than that, but three common types of high court writ. Um, so uh, there's a writ of possession uh, that, that generally pertains to property. Um, so somebody wants to uh, regain possession of a house or a flat or etc. Uh, there's a writ of control, which... Um, is, is a money order, so amount of money that's owed from one person to another. 
uh, a writ of delivery, uh, which is generally used by finance companies to um, return a specific item. Um, for the purpose of today, uh, I thought it would be best to talk about the writ of control, which is um, uh, money order, so money owed from one person to another. Um, so high court enforcement uh, is one of the methods of enforcement where a judgment has been obtained in the claimant's favour uh, and the judgment amount hasn't been paid by the defendant. Um, obviously, the court have made that order um, and it hasn't been carried through. Um, so in simple terms, we apply for a high court writ. Um, so the writ is the high court version of a county court warrant. So in the county court, it's a warrant. In the high court, it's a writ. Um, and that's on behalf of the client. Uh, and it commands the enforcement agent uh, named on the uh, writ to attend the defendant's premises uh, in order to take control or seize goods in order to raise from that uh, at auction the sum stated on the judgment. Uh, in practical terms, obviously, that sale um, doesn't necessarily take take place. Um, in most cases, the defendant will uh, usually be forced by the enforcement action to resolve the judgment by way of making a payment. Um, we're able to obtain a writ um, where the judgment uh, has a value of at least £600. Um, below that, claimants only have the option of, of a county court um, and the writ itself is, is stamped by the High Court. It's witnessed by the current Lord Chancellor and it's addressed to the High Court Enforcement Officer. Um, and it, that's, that's the, the bit of paper that we need in order to enforce that judgment for the claimant. Okay, so the courts said, you owe me £1,000. How long does it normally take from when I get the court to say they have to pay me £1,000 to when you are able to go and seize items in order to get my thousand pounds if somebody either refuses or just point blank ignores that judgment so a, a judgment um all judgments um will generally be for payment forthwith um bit of an old english word but it, but it means immediately um so we're able to um enforce that judgment um in the high court the only exception to that is if there's been something put on by the county court that says you know you've got seven days or 14 days in which to pay but generally, there will be for payment immediately, um, in which case we can uh, we can escalate that to the high court straight away. Uh, there's obviously a bit of a time a bit of a time delay um, in the application stage to the high court. Um, it's taking probably between ten and fourteen days at the moment to get the high court writ back, uh, and then following that, once we're in possession of the high court writ, we have to give the defendant um, seven days in which to make payments in, in what's called the compliance period. And when you turn up, so they, they don't comply within those seven days and you turn up, are you just able to quite literally take what it, whatever it is that you might see either on their property, if they turn up to the house, if there's a car on the drive or if there's something in the house, can you just take it? So, I mean, it's, it's always the the last resort of, a, of an enforcement agent or a good enforcement agent um, to want to take things away. Um, you know, we're, we're there first and foremost really to get the best outcome for the claimants. Uh, and the best outcome for the claimant isn't really taking things away and waiting you know, a number of weeks for that to be sold at, at an auction uh, and incurring further costs of removal and, and further costs of, of the, the auction house. Um, so if we can get the best result uh, for the claimant, which is obviously to get paid uh, as quickly as possible, uh, that's what we'll always do. Um, that said, as enforcement agents, we're always looking, uh, as soon as we arrive at a visit, we're always looking at what what potentially could be removed um, if all else fails. Okay. And are you restricted by what you are able to take away? And I, I say this because, of course, the, the, the easy answer to all these questions is you turn up and somebody says, yes, I'll pay. But the reality is if they don't, it's kind of understanding the processes that go from that stage or indeed whether or not the high court enforcement option is the best one for you because if you know that they might not necessarily have items that you can take away or they don't have items that are going to be of a sufficient value it's not necessarily the option to choose yeah so i mean all all enforcement agents in england and wales um, are governed by the taking control of goods act um, which sets out certain things that are protected under law that we wouldn't uh, we wouldn't look to remove um examples of those and it's, it's quite obviously a, a long piece of legislation but examples of those would be sort of bedding and clothing things that are, are needed for uh, general day-to-day -day living um, and items that belong to other people 
Um, so obviously we're there for items that belong to the defendant. Sometimes, uh, as is as is life, defendants live with other people. Uh, so there might be items there that belong to them, uh, in which case the onus would be on them to to show ownership for them. Um, so so yeah, I mean there's, there are certain restrictions. I mean what we always say to claimants is, you know, do a little bit of uh, due diligence beforehand. Um, you know, don't sort of pursue people that you know don't have anything because. Uh, high court enforcement might not be the, the, the right route for you. Um, it, it may be that you want to look at a different avenue. And how do you generate the cash then in order to make the payment of the judgment by seizing those goods? So if we get to the point where items need to be seized, um, we, we, we organise removal of those items. If it's, uh, you know, it's a vehicle or a boat or a motorbike, then obviously that's... Uh, removed on a recovery truck um, otherwise it's sort of household items that are removed by uh, the auction house themselves uh, the auction house will then take over sale of those items um, we'll let the uh, defendant know that um, the items that we've seized are due to be sold at public auction um, and the result of that sale would be um, what we've managed to raise on behalf of the claimant um, so so that's how we get the cash from from removing the items and presumably there has to be a bit of thought going into what items you take away if they're then going to be at auction. Uh, quite often people go, oh, they've got an enormous telly, but the reality is, I suppose, that television is not only second-hand now, but if it then goes to an auction, it's not necessarily going to even bring in the second-hand value, so people have to bear that in mind because some of the more common experiences I've had in the past are people assume that the things they've got in the house are worth a fortune you can all go and grab them and they'll make a million pounds and that's great because they'll get their money back but it doesn't seem to work out quite that straightforward does it there's a there's a bit more meticulous thought that has to go into it certainly from your point of view yeah I mean uh, pe- people always like to think that what they, what they own is worth a fortune you're always going to think it's worth more than it would be at auction uh, and it goes for every item, every item really. You know, sort of TVs um, at auction, you know, are not worth hundreds of pounds; they're worth tens of pounds. Um, and you know, we, we've always got to look at the the overall situation and try and work out um, what's best commercially for the client, because we're always there on the client's best interests. Um, so if it's going to cost uh, two or three hundred pounds to remove something that actually at auction would only possibly raise um, eighty to hundred pounds, then Potentially, that's not the best route for the for the claimants. Um, we we sometimes in those circumstances would look at um, putting arrangements in place where the goods are of low value um, in order to leave the goods where they are, um, and we do that under what's called a controlled goods agreement. Um, so we leave the goods where they are in the defendant's house. Uh, we've effectively taken control of those uh, with the authority of the court. Um, at, and we, we can come back at a later date to collect those if need be, if the arrangement fails. Uh, what we generally find is that arrangements made under controlled goods agreements are seen through by the defendant because they're, they're sort of seen as being a, a second chance. Um, and they don't generally want a rerun of, of enforcement agents coming back for those, for those items. What level of success are you able to usually get in getting an actual payment on the day, obviously, to avoid the seizure of goods? Figures differ for that simply because uh, a payment can be a part payment, it can be payment in full. We, we will always look to get payment in full for the claimant because uh, that's the best case scenario. But, you know, if there's a, if there's a half payment uh, with a, a, an agreement to do uh, the rest of the money in a couple of weeks' time, um, then, you know, that might be an avenue that we go down. We'll always, by the way, you know, keep the claimant informed throughout the process and all these, all these decisions have been made um, with, with the claimant's uh, approval. Um, so, you know, it's it's difficult to give sort of figures on it. Um, you know, we we sort of look from certainly from Lackford's point of view, we look at sort of sixty percent um, as a as a, a payment rate. Um, you know, there are some instances where the cases can go on a little bit longer because we have to do a little bit extra work to try and find the defendant. So it may be that when the judgment was originally uh, granted. The defendant was in one place, and and, and since then, and now he's, he's he's moved on. Um, so sometimes we have to do a little bit of work, and it takes a little bit longer to get the best result for the claimant. And how do you get paid then? Does the claimant pay your fees? So you know, the claimant doesn't pay our fees. Uh, so our fees are paid by the defendants. Um, so the uh, Taint Control of Goods Act um, sets out a fee schedule. 
um, that's uh, set set again by the Ministry of Justice, and and those fees are added to the debt. So um, the the fees for High Court enforcement uh, are in three stages, and um, the fees at each stage are added um, to the uh, the debt that's owed by the defendant. So in other words, if we don't get uh, get paid and don't get money back to the claimant, uh, we don't get paid either. So uh, the the onus is on us really to uh, to get a good result. And how do you think the coronavirus situation is going to affect your ability to do these things? Yeah, I mean the dreaded coronavirus. I mean it's it's uh, what we know firsthand now how it's uh, how it's affected us so far. Um, so um, you know, as far as face to face enforcement's concerned, we took the view, uh, I, along with the other directors, I took the view that um, that face to face enforcement for the for the time being uh, wasn't going to be safe uh, for the public or for our staff. Um, or for our enforcement agents. Um, we've got uh, sort of a skeleton office staff um, still working, um, but enforcement agents we've uh, we've put on hold for now. Um, as I say, we're advising our clients to go ahead with the process um, of obtaining the writ uh, so that uh, we can get through that and get the compliance period uh, out of the way so that when we do get the green light from, from central government, we can, uh, we can continue uh, and get... Get uh, get out of enforcement as quickly as possible, um, but you know, in all good conscience, um, you know it's very very difficult to enforce a high court writ um, and comply with social distancing, which is what we're what we're being asked to do, uh, and quite rightly so. Um, and so we took the view of, for the time being, um, you know, we we'd, we'd hold fire with enforcement, um, uh, get things in a good place, get things stronger, and then you know, once we get the green light, we're ready to go again. So in terms of people who might be looking at this as a, an option, it's not a case of don't use this as an option. It's more a case of get the ball rolling and get it up to the point where you've got the writ and you guys are able to then go out so that when the likes of the social distancing are lifted, you're able to do your job straight away as opposed to starting the paper trail because you've delayed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, 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 you've got to remember as well that, you know, some defendants pay... Um, during the application stage for a high court writ. Some defendants pay in the compliance stage before we've actually had to go out and have a face-to-face meeting with them. Um, so, you know, really by holding back, we're just, we're just uh, adding more time to the, the amount of time the money's outstanding. So I would suggest certainly if you've got a judgment and it's, uh, and it's ready to go, uh, let us get the, get the writ for you. Uh, and then when we get the green light, we're, we're at the front of the queue. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's there's going to be some uncertain times coming up, I think. And um, you know, if you're owed money from somebody, it's better to be at the front of the queue than in the back. Uh, you mentioned earlier on about the minimum value for using a high court officer, uh, in which case you have to use a, a county court bailiff. Um, what's the difference between the county court bailiff and a high court officer if the monetary value isn't an issue? Can you still use both? If you can still use both, why would you choose one over the other? Okay, so um, b- below uh, six hundred pounds, uh, you've got the option of the county court bailiffs. We we can't enforce judgments uh, below the six hundred pounds threshold in the high court. Um, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure why. That's just the way that it was uh, that it was set up. Um, in, in very simple terms, the difference between the two is that uh, a county court bailiff is. Um, an employed civil servant um, and uh, a high court enforcement officer is um, uh, generally self-employed uh, and, and works on works on results. So, uh, in, in simple terms, a county court bailiff gets paid whether he collects your money or not. Um, whereas a high court enforcement officer, uh, if he doesn't collect your money, doesn't get paid either. So, it, it, it's uh, it's not too difficult to see the difference between <laughs> between the two. <laughs> Rob, have you got any questions? I did have, yeah. Um, I just wanted you to explain a little bit more, Matt. So you said about uh, a controlled goods agreement a little bit earlier on. So you have a situation where you you put a controlled goods agreement in place and then in due course, maybe they've defaulted on a payment that they were supposed to make or something along those lines. Are the rules different then when you go back for a second time? in terms of you gaining access to the property? Yeah, thanks, Rob. A good question. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, the control goods agreement, uh, as I mentioned before, the, the high court enforcement's in three stages. So we will have attended on, on stage one uh, the previous visit. Um, so by 
uh, re-attending because the control goods agreement has been uh, defaulted on. Uh, the first and foremost, the defendants incurred further cost because he's, he's now leaped up to stage two of enforcement. Um, the fact that we've um, previously uh, entered the property uh, under the high court rate um, and, and we've completed the control goods agreement now gives us the ability to uh, force entry to the property if needed. Uh, the goods inside that property are under control of the court. Um, the custodian of those goods is the, is the enforcement agent that took control of them. Um, and so if we need to get access to them, we can force entry uh, and able to do that. So, so yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a different scenario when somebody um, defaults on a controlled goods agreement. Are there any different rules in relation to access when you're talking about a commercial premises? Yeah, so again, good question. You know, uh, commercial premises, um, uh, High Court enforcement agents have the ability to force entry to commercial premises um, on the first visit if, if required. Um, so we, we would do that by way of um, instructing a locksmith to um, gain entry for us. Um, so yeah, I mean, commercial premises, um, as long as they're not uh, attached to a residential uh, premises of any kind, um, certainly we can we can make entry to those under the powers that the writ gives us. So with the domestic premises, you can't uh, on a first attendance. You're not just able to let yourself in. You you need the permission and cooperation of the defendant. Yes, the Taking Control of Goods Act um, um, lays that out. So we we're able to make entry through um, an open door. Um, uh, open or unlocked door um, so you know it, it's not unheard of for us to make entry um, into residential premises on a first visit um, you know the, the, the rules are slightly different because it's where somebody lives um, and probably quite rightly so um, commercial premises uh, don't benefit from that and um, yeah we, we are able to make entry on the, on the first visit and we use locksmith if necessary what happens if you go the first time round and, and they ask for sort of the agree a payment plan or they agree to do something and you go away and they don't do it? Is it different the second time round if you don't have, say, the control order in place? Yeah, so I mean, if we, if we visit somebody uh, the first time and uh, we, we've gone down the route of setting a control goods agreement, uh, we, we generally only do that if there was, um, if there was um, you know, a, insufficient goods at the property because again it's all, all in the best interest of the claimant so if there's goods at the property that will cover the outstanding debt we'll, we'll look at removing those so we may have we may have set a controlled goods agreement and um, if we if we have to return because there's been a default on that control goods agreement then yeah i mean it puts the it puts the defendant in, in a very different situation you know the 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 trust really with the control goods agreement being broken has gone uh, and and we're really looking to remove goods at that point so it's uh, it, it absolutely uh, changes things completely. So the ultimate aim is to try and get it resolved with the first visit, really. What happens if they're not in or there's no one answering the door? Okay, so we attend the property and um, and there's nobody in. Um, we'll, we'll generally leave um, a, a formal letter. It's called a letter of attendance um, to let them know that we've been, uh, let them know what the situation is and to give them contact details so they can contact us and, and resolve the matter without us having to go back. Um we will sometimes make inquiries with neighbours um, and and make sure we've got um, you know the right place um, and, and make sure that the person we're looking for lives there um, and and you know generally uh, after a letter of attendance we'll get a call from the defendant who wants to resolve the matter. I suppose it's just worth uh, sort of clarifying Matt that all of this is in the context of you trying to recover money because the rules are different if it's an eviction, aren't they, in terms of access, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So as I said before, you know, we're, we're looking today really at the uh, the writ of control, which is um, linked to an amount of money owed by the the, the defendant by uh, by the defendant to the claimant. Um, there, there are different writs, uh, one of which is a writ of uh, possession, um, which uh, is, is is for uh, the return of a property, um, and it and it follows um, a possession hearing. Um, the, the ability to force entry uh, on the writ of possession is is um, we, we have that from from the second we we arrive um, again all of these you know powers that we that we have available to us we only really use those when absolutely necessary um, so you know the, you will generally find that uh, when executing the writ of possession uh, the person is is completely aware of it and actually when you get there they, they open the front door for you. 
Um, but, you know, if there was an issue and, and they weren't willing to do that, then absolutely we, we have the ability to force entry under that writ. Presume people are able to instruct you to do this direct if they've got a judgment, they don't have to go through, say, a solicitor. Yeah, I mean, we work alongside lots of solicitors' firms. Uh, Johnson & Boom are, are one of them, um, uh, you know, and we, we absolutely, absolutely take uh, instruction from them. Um, you can um, contact us directly. Um, we've got a couple of ways for you to do that. You can email us at info at lackfords at lackfords.co.uk, um, which is being monitored as normal at the moment um, during the current circumstances. Uh, you can call our head office on zero triple three three double four eight two three zero, or you can visit our website at www.lackfords.co.uk. Contact our partners at Johnson & Boone and they'll be happy to put you in touch. Well, we'll stick those contact details in the show notes so you can check those out there, guys, if, if you've missed them for whatever reason. Um, I think we've done everything there, have we, Rob? Yeah, I think we have. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show, Matt. We really appreciate your insight and your expertise. Uh, hopefully hopefully, the social distancing will allow you to get back to normal as, as soon as possible. Yeah, no problem. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks, Matt. Do you have a passion, hobby or expertise and want to share it with the world? Why not do a podcast? The PodStation offers a wide range of packages to make this a reality, ranging from training and support for those who have no idea where to begin to podcasters who just need somewhere to host their show. With prices starting at a mere £15 per month, you can now get involved in one of the fastest growing entertainment forms in the world without all the headaches. To find out more, visit thepodstation.co.uk forward slash station dash packages. And remember, those with passion, podcast. Thank you very much for that, Matt. That was extremely useful to say the least. There's quite a lot that you've, you've mentioned there. A lot of it seems to be dependent upon the information that you have available. So is there a, a an investigation process you need to go through to decide which of these options you should be pursuing? Yeah, if somebody comes to us with a judgment that they're unable to recover, we'll go through a, a process with them to gather as much information as we can about the defendant or the party that they're trying to, to recover the money from. And then off the back of that, it will be a case of making a judgment call as to what likely effect you're going to have by implementing any one of the given enforcement methods. Uh, it's often the case that if there is a property, the first thing you do is secure the judgment against the property, just in case the later sell the property and it's no longer there for you to uh, do so. Um, but in other instances, for example, if you're going to instruct bailiffs, you need to consider whether they're likely to have assets that will be sufficient enough to to cover what you're trying to recover. Um, so on large judgments, for example, uh, it might be quite difficult for a bailiff to remove, you know, 20, 30,000 pounds worth of goods from a property, uh, unless it's a commercial property with significant assets. So the evidence is quite important in deciding which of these options is going to be best. Is there any time limits on when you can use one of these enforcement measures? You can't start enforcement until after the period on the judgment for payment has uh, elapsed and then you get six years in which to enforce your judgment from that period. Okay, and is there any limit to how many times you can try and enforce it using a method? No, you can go backwards and forwards as many times as you want over the different methods. Um, obviously, if, if you've obtained things like writs, so... Um, Matt discussed earlier on the obtaining of a writ uh, and the process that they will then follow. They have a different shelf life. But generally speaking, you can do things as many times as you want until you've got the outcome that you want. Obviously, the claimant will need to be mindful of how much they're spending in order to try and enforce the judgment uh, and how many times they go round in circles, whether they are actually going to get a different outcome. And Matt mentioned about if they're successful in recovering the money, then the other side pays the costs that you've had, the, you've incurred in using those enforcement processes. Does that apply to all the other options that you've mentioned? Yeah, it does. I mean, you, you'll always ask the court to add on the costs that you incur. The difficulty in all of these matters are that 
there's going to be certain costs you can recover and certain costs you can't recover. It depends upon the process that you've had to follow. So, for example, it can be quite difficult if you've had to use inquiry agents to find a debtor who's moved during the enforcement process. You might not necessarily recover those fees, um, but on the on, on the whole, you will be able to recover any additional costs that you incur in carrying out the specific tasks that are attributable to, to these types of enforcement. If the amount that has been secured is fell within what we mentioned as the small claims track last episode, which is sort of a more straightforward and less valuable case or one that tends to be worth less than £10,000. Um, and if I've done that case myself as as the litigant in person, I've, I've run it from start to finish myself, are these enforcement options the kind of processes that I can be doing? Because this they sound quite complicated. There sounds to be... There sounds to be a lot of nuanced elements that need to be considered even before deciding which one to do. All of the different enforcement elements have their complications and, and some of them are quite technical. Um, there are some of them that, you know, the average person could get on with and do themselves. The skill comes in in making sure that you are using the correct enforcement method. And then if it is one of the more complicated ones, such as one of the ones that requires an application to court, uh, or certainly if you're going to start making applications to uh, s- secure judgments against property, then you should get legal advice. Uh, the reason for that is that if you do do it wrong, you can end up on the wrong end of a cost order from the other side if they incur wasted costs. I think the charging order is probably a good example of that because once you get, and it's it's not just a case of getting the order, is it? You've got to then register the charge or else it's not worth the paper it's written on really. Um, and if yeah, they sell the property with you only having done half the job and not realising it, you've you've wasted your money, really. Yeah, it's it, it's it's a fairly fiddly sort of process. It it involves you know involvement with the court and making the application. It involves service issues to make sure that it's been served on all the right parties. For example, there might be a requirement to serve it on a bank if there's a mortgage on the property. Um, and, and then, as you say, it also involves liaison with land registry and making sure that it's all correctly registered against the property. Because if it isn't correctly registered, the fact that you've actually got the order from the court is a bit pointless because any conveyancer at a later date who was dealing with a sale wouldn't see that that order was in place uh, and would be able to carry on with the sale anyway. If you've started the enforcement process, whichever one it might be, are you still able to reach a settlement with the other side during that period? Yeah, of course you can. One of the things we will always do when someone approaches us with a judgment is we'll consider whether with our involvement we're able to secure a payment for them first. Um, Because if we're able to secure a payment with them first or terms for a payment, um, that is obviously much more straightforward for them uh, and it can be much quicker it's only if we're confident that that isn't going to be the case uh, or if they're confident to the point that they instruct us that that isn't going to be the case, that we'd go through each of the enforcement methods. Even if they've already, you know, previously had a go at it themselves and they've maybe used bailiffs before or um, they might have had a go at, at one of the applications, we can still go back and, and see maybe why that wasn't successful. Um, and we can weigh up whether any of the other options are, are going to be any more successful. They should also bear in mind that you know the, the passage of time will change things. So just because something didn't work a while ago, you know you might have done a third-party debt order and there was no money in the account at that time, that doesn't mean in 12, 18 months' time, if you try the same application again, there won't be funds there this time. Uh, it's just a case of being sensible and, and, and making a judgment call. Six years, of course, is a long time, isn't it? It is. Great. Well, I, I think we've covered, well, I say we've covered it. We've we've done a quite a cursory view of the enforcement process. I think you've, as you've picked up from many of the things Rob has said, there's an awful lot to each of those options. So um, if, if you're thinking about doing it, it's always recommended you get some advice from the likes of Rob and his team. Um, to make sure that you, you're choosing the best option that's most likely to get your money back because, of course, that's the whole point of doing it. It's not just a case of making somebody's life a bit more difficult because they're not 
cooperating with you um if you if they do want to get in touch rob to get some help um do you want to just give them the contact information so they can uh, get in touch yeah of course so as you say mark the, the idea of this is just to give a summary of the options available but we're happy to speak to people on an individual basis um and we can review any judgments and, and have chats in terms of what they've done uh up until this stage to try and recover the judgment sums and, and maybe what we could do moving forward. If anybody wants to book a consultation such as that, then they can do so uh, by calling the office on 0151-637-2034. They can drop us an email to info at johnsonandburn.co.uk. Uh, they can look us up on any of our social media channels and, and drop us a message by there. Or of course, if they download our app, then they can book an appointment straight into one of our solicitor's diaries uh, at a selected time for them, and they'll receive a call. Great. So the social media channels for the benefit of anyone who's not sure, Johnson & Boone are on uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. In terms of fees for enforcement, are they fixed fees or does it go on a case-by-case basis? For most of these processes, we can quote a fee, which is is fixed at the start. Um, but we'll only give that once we've performed an assessment because it very much depends upon what investigatory work is required up to the point of we can actually start whichever one of the processes is, is going to be most suitable. Um, if, for example, you know, it's just a case of us sending somebody off, maybe in Matt's direction, for example, if it's a high court enforcement uh, situation, then there wouldn't actually be any fees in relation to the enforcement. So what we'd say is sort of book the consultation, uh, have the consultation with us in terms of getting the advice, and then we'd go from there. And ultimately, there's no harm in finding out and asking the question, is there? Absolutely not. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Rob. That's uh, That's been another fascinating uh, episode all about enforcement. What are we going to be covering next? And I say we, the royal we, because, of course, uh, you're you're leaving me for this one, aren't you? I am. I'm stepping back for this one. Uh, and Jonathan Field, who's another one of our solicitors, is going to be talking about uh, child access matters. So we're, we're moving into the family law region here. So if anyone's got any any family issues, um, Jonathan's going to be touching on some of those those points next week. So you can catch that next week. As as I said, you can find the shows on uh, the platforms of your preference, all the major ones, the website, johnsonboom.co.uk, on the mobile app. Um, So go and check them out. They're all there for you to uh, digest at your leisure. So thank you very much, Rob, for all your help. You've been fantastic as always. And uh, I'll see you when I see you, I guess. Pleasure. Thanks very much, Mark. Get social at Johnson & Boone on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Check out all our shows exclusively on thepodstation.co.uk.